Today we're going to be talking about archaeology and the Old Testament. Welcome. This is the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. Like I mentioned in the introduction, uh, today we're going to be talking about archaeology confirming the historicity of the Old Testament. Uh, I have a very distinguished guest with me today, Dr. Randall Price. Uh, Just a little bit about Dr. Price. Dr. Randall Price received his master's degree from Dallas Theological Seminary in the Old Testament in Old Testament and Semitic languages and his doctorate from the University of Texas at Austin in Middle Eastern studies with a concentration in Jewish studies and biblical archaeology. He's also done graduate work in Semitic languages and archaeology at Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Uh, He is a distinguished Distinguished Research Professor and Executive Director of the Center for Judaic Studies at Liberty University. He's also an adjunct Professor of Apologetics at Veritas Seminary in San Diego, California. He was Director of Excavations on the Qumran Plateau. That's the site of the Dead Sea Scrolls in Israel from 2002 to 2012. And he's been Senior Archaeologist for the Ark Search LLC expedition to Mount Ararat in eastern Turkey since 2009. In 1993, he founded World of Bible Ministries, Inc. and serves as its president and traveling speaker. Dr. Price is a member of the American Schools of Oriental Research, the Near East Archaeological Society, uh, Institute for Biblical Research, the Society of Biblical Literature, the Evangelical Theological Society, and the Tyndale House Fellowship. He is on the boards of the Associates for Biblical Research, Olive Tree Ministries, and the Pre-Trib Research Center. Uh, You could say that Dr. Price is certainly an expert in this area. He's got multiple books. Uh, We're going to be talking about them uh, towards the end of this show, and uh, I do plan on having Dr. Price back uh, to talk about uh, the New Testament and archaeology that confirms the historicity of the New Testament as well. Uh, But some of the books would include The Stones Cry Out. Uh, He's also uh, a forthcoming book very soon coming out, The Zondervan Handbook of Biblical Archaeology, uh, Secrets of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Searching for the Original Bible, The Temple and Bible Prophecy. We're going to be talking to him about several of these books towards the end of today and next time. One thing I do need to warn you about, guys, today, uh, for whatever reason, I have no idea why, but my soundboard uh, gave me uh, quite a bit of problems on this particular episode. Uh, Dr. Price was on a cell phone, which didn't help, but my soundboard... Uh, for whatever reason, the mute button stopped working. So every time I had to clear my throat, you can hear it loud and clear in the podcast, which is unfortunate because uh, in this podcast, I had to clear my throat many, many times. Whatever the case, the content is still great, uh, and it's an honor to have Dr. Price on. So with that, Dr. Randall Price, welcome to the Youth Apologetics Training Podcast. 
Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be with you today. Oh, the the pleasure is mine. Uh, I've been wanting to have you on my podcast for quite a long time. I have, uh, might surprise you, I have a whole list of people that I want to have on the show that I started way back when I first started considering bringing guests on the podcast. And uh, oddly enough, you're at the very top of the list. It's you. So uh, this is something I've been wanting to do for a long time. So it is an honor and, and thank you for coming on. Uh, and so, uh, friends, today we're going to be talking about biblical archaeology. Uh, Dr. Randall Price, uh, he, is, uh, he is an expert in this area. He actually has several books on the subject. We're going to be talking about those a little bit later. Um, and so, yeah, we want to talk about various archaeological finds that uh, support the historicity of the Bible. And so uh, skeptics, they're always taking shots at the Bible. They're always trying to uh, take us down one way or another. Um, what are some of the ways right now today that skeptics are going after the historicity of the scriptures? Well, I don't think that the form of the attacks have changed because the worldview that they have, a, a secular worldview largely, that drives this uh, results in the same kind of questions but. Uh, basically, they attack the Bible as not an historical account, but a religious one. And so they say it reflects the religious viewpoint at the time. Uh, you can't, uh, therefore, expect it to have uh, accurate historical statements. They view it in light of the ancient Eastern literature at the time, and it's just one more of that kind of literature, so it has nothing unique about it. Uh, they don't see it as a divine message. They don't see it. They see it simply as a product of the time, and therefore the worldview of that time, the idea that the world was flat, or they had an idea that um, certain forces of nature caused something. So they, they try to read that into the Bible, and they try to say that uh, really you know, the, the statements in Genesis, the statements in other places reflect um, the, the customs, and the worldview at that time. Uh, and then they also try to say, look, you know, the Bible does not agree with consensus science, and therefore uh, it can't possibly be right, because we now, through the scientific method, have confirmed uh, the way the world came into being, the age of the earth, things like this, and so uh, just as a comport with uh, what we read in the Bible. Now, of course, the response to that is, you know, when you come to it from a perspective that it only can be judged on the basis of what we know, what we can see, what we have on Earth, then you have a very limited context to work from. Science has changed throughout time. There's no consensus science, as they think. And the result is that uh, when you look at the things in the Bible as compared to the way events and interpretation of events in history, uh, science and interpretation of science. It's changed many times throughout the history. The Bible has not changed. It remains the same. In almost every case that I can think of, when we come around kind of full circle, the Bible says what the Bible says, and ultimately science or historical interpretation catches up with it and uh, it confirms it. So that's what I think the archaeological record largely does for us. But skeptics want to date everything in the Bible very late in time. 
uh, to remove it from the historical context. They would say, for instance, the whole Old Testament uh, was uh, originated after the exile of the, uh, of the Jewish people and returned from exile uh, somewhere, you know, in the 6th century B.C., uh, maybe as late as the 5th century, so we can place it into the Hellenistic period. And what that does is that means nothing that you read the Bible uh, for thousands of years actually took place at the time and, and in the place it says. And, of course, the argument against that is that there are so many accuracies, so many time-based statements and details that no one could have, could have uh, recorded that. There could have been an eyewitness. So these are the kind of attacks uh, that continue to come on the Bible uh, simply because, in the bottom line, people have an anti-supernatural bias. They don't want there to be a God who would call them to account. They don't want to see these things as statements of, uh, of deity that will require them to change their life or to believe something they don't want to believe. And the result is they have to attack that right for self-preservation. Hmm. And so they, they come to the table with their own preconceived ideas, uh, a naturalistic worldview that uh, says that uh, you know millions and millions of years ago, uh, mankind evolved from pond scum on this planet. Uh, and then looking at the scriptures, they date all of the, the uh, various events in the scriptures during the wrong time throughout history so that when they look at that wrong time, uh, and start digging in the dirt and looking at the, the uh, various records and things that they find, they find that nothing matches that time period that also matches the scriptures. So the, the, the deck is basically stacked from the start. Right. I mean, what, we, what we face, for instance, in archaeology is two different perspectives. One of the minimalist, one of the maximalist. The minimalist minimalizes biblical information. In fact, they just exclude it all together. They generally start with whatever uh, archaeological data they have. But you have to remember that in archaeology, most sites were destroyed in the past. They've been built over in the past and not accessible to people. Um, much of the material that was there was reused by later civilizations. Uh, a yeah. lot is just simply through the process of time gone. Uh, and so we have a very limited amount of information. Well, if that's all you have, to, to build your case on, and you don't find something in that limited context that you find in the Bible, and you say, well, see, the Bible uh, is wrong because we don't find that in the historical context. Well, that's, of course, a very skewed way of looking at something, because the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Just because you don't find it yet, or don't know about it, well, then obviously uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. There's just one site in Israel, the site of Tel Hatzor. It'll take over 700 years at the rate we're going to excavate that fully. Well, oh, wow. there are many, many secrets there and many things that the Bible talks about that took place there, but who can wait 700 years to decide whether or not they believe the Bible? So if you wait on the basis of the data that you have uh, to have every single thing confirmed archaeologically, you wait long beyond your lifetime. That's not going to work. Uh, the maximalist, on the other hand, says, look, the Bible is an historical document. 
Uh, it is one that has been proven in terms of uh, historical statement and archaeology, many other types of things. Uh, the result is, just like any other document we have, it gives us the more complete uh, source of information. And so when we have the limited context of archaeology, we simply fit that into the larger context of the biblical document and find support and find parallels and find, you know, compliments. But, uh, but because we start with the Bible, and that means we have to presume that it is accurate, that it is a document, then we can find uh, things within the archaeological record. Uh, without the Bible, you know, the archaeological record just stands as a natural or secular testimony to some limited part of history. With the Bible, in the context of the Bible, um, where you have, you're digging into very places the Bible mentions, the very time period the Bible mentions, and you find these correspondences, then, then you know uh, that at least uh, the document was useful and, in fact, argues for starting with that rather than simply isolating it and starting with the science. Hmm. Well, what kind of things, let's jump right in. Let's look at some of these finds. Uh, what, what types of things that have been found support the historicity of the book of Genesis? Well, there's all kinds of things. I mean, it, uh, I think Genesis has far more to support it than uh, many other books in the Bible. That seems strange because the skeptics will say that the, the earlier you go in history and the more mythical the context seems, like people claim Genesis is, uh, that you would have little information. And that's not the case, in fact. Um, we have uh, more I mean, I, it, there are whole books published on this, the Near Eastern archaeological accounts that parallel things such as the creation, the flood, the fall. Uh, we have the Numa Unleash, which is a uh, Syrian document that talks about the creation and the flood. We have the Gilgamesh epic, which it talks mm -hmm. about um, the flood in, in Tablet 11. And we know Gilgamesh, who's mentioned in the tablet, is a historical figure. We have statues of Gilgamesh and other accounts about him as a, as a king. He's mentioned in the Sumerian king list. So, you know, we know it's an accurate historical figure. This isn't just mythological. We have the Adapa um, account, which is, deals with the uh, uh, creation, but also with uh, man, put in a responsible position uh, over the affairs of God, given a test uh, relating to food, failing, and then being judged by the gods. Uh, all of this is very similar to what we find in the uh, fact of Adam in the garden. There's uh, even the mention you know, of, of a tempter and all of this. Um, we have, my goodness, uh, let's think of some of, I mean, if you think of the uh, just the prevalence of figures such as the cherubim. You can call them griffins, you can call them sphinxes, call them other things. Uh, they go from the earliest Sumerian, Mesopotamian, uh, Syrian, Babylonian, all the way through Greek and Roman periods. Uh, these, this kind of uh, iconography, these figures, and guardian figures. We see similar ones on buildings today, the two lion figures you'll see in front of the libraries or uh, public buildings. <coughs> Those harken back to what we find in the book of Genesis when it says that God placed two cherubim 
stationed um, east of Eden to prevent man from returning to the garden. I think it was such a dramatic thing, memorable thing, that just persists in all of the different religious cultures of, of time. Uh, just in the last, I guess, probably decade, has come out um, the excavations of Gobekli Tepe. These, this is in uh, uh, southeastern Turkey. Uh, it's now considered by some the oldest archaeological site in the world. Uh, conventional dating dates between 10,000 and 12,000 BC. What's interesting there is you have this complex of, well, uh, there's standing stones, T-shaped stones, and on the stones are carved uh, pictures of animals, priests with their hands raised, all kinds of things. And the whole site was later buried uh, under sand, not, not to destroy it, but to preserve it. And what's interesting is it dates from just after the time of the flood. And so, you know, what, what's on the minds of people? This is only a couple hundred miles away from Mount Ararat. Uh, so what's on the minds of people? Well, the, 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 the animals, which are ubiquitous, are all over the world. There's a small number of people. They, they want to give some sense of, of worship in, uh, to God. So this is a, a, a ritual structure that's constructed. People are still trying to, to understand it. It's, uh, it's an amazing sight. Uh, you know, when you come to something too, like uh, the story of Noah's Ark, we mentioned a couple of things that deal with that. Uh, just in the last couple of years, the Simmons Ark tablet was discovered. It was uh, discovered someone donated a Babylonian tablet to the uh, British Museum. And it was read as an account of building the Ark and setting the Ark on the waters. And the Ark is a huge vessel. But it also, for the first time in any of these Near Eastern accounts, mentions that the animals were brought on the ark two by two. Well, that's, that's a detail in the Bible. That you, it's amazing to see it in another document that predates the Bible, but it's there. Uh, some of these other accounts mention the ravens and the dove, and they mention landing on a mountain and offering worship afterward. There's so many parallels that say this just cannot be uh, some made-up story. Now, of course, people will turn around and say, well, it's not a made-up story. The Bible picked it up from these ancient Near Eastern uh, documents and the stories that were from long ago. problem is that when you look at these documents, they're extremely mythological. Uh, I mean, they certainly have, I think, an historical core, so there's a common memory of the flood. But it's styled according to the religious uh, viewpoints of the people that present it. Whereas the Bible is presented almost almost in a non-religious way. It's very specific the days and the time of the event, uh, all these things. Uh, And the Bible doesn't have those same elements. Now, we know this. We know that um, myth over time only becomes more mythical. It doesn't become more historical. Uh, And if you start with myth, you're going to end up with myth and probably even a greater myth. So if the Bible started with these myths, it should be more mythical, but instead it reads more historical. So they can't, one cannot have borrowed from the other. What happens is they both have this common historical event of the flood that happened, and so they record these details. Um, I mentioned the Sumerian key list. That's a, a document, there's different uh, versions of this, but one of the unique things there is it mentions that... Uh, 
you have the extreme ages of kings before the flood, and then it says, um, it says kingship was removed from the earth, and then after the flood, kingship was restored to the earth. And so it has the flood as a dividing point. But then afterward, it lists more kings, but their ages progressively go down to, to pretty normal lifespans. Well, that same thing is seen in the book of Genesis. Before the flood, we have longevity. We have uh, people living 900 years and plus, like Methuselah. And uh, then after the flood, ages start to drop until we get to Abraham, uh, you know, in the, in the hundreds, and then finally gets down to the lifespans we have today. So th- these kind of details show there's something going on that is, um, that, that these are, as I said, these are real kings in these lists, so this is a historical document. So if something is being observed, this is a realistic account. Um, we have, I mean, just say something like the Tower of Babel, also some people think it's mythological. We know these great ziggurats existed from the Sumerian period, the earliest period onward. But we had a stele called the Tower of Babel Stele, in which Nebuchadnezzar II talks about how he uh, was a great restorer and a builder of religious uh, places. And he talks about uh, how he built this tower to the heavens and then laid these bricks and all. It's very similar language that you find in the Bible. Now, of course, this is long after the time of the Tower of Babel, but it's in the same place. We're talking about someone who restored ancient place, uh, and this could very well refer to that. So uh, on and on it goes. There's so many more things like this. But uh, the book of Genesis has, uh, if, if viewed correctly, a great deal of historical attestation. Amazing. What about Exodus? Exodus is probably also one of the more maligned books, and a lot of the problems with Exodus deals with the dating. Uh, people, right. uh, you have archaeological data, you just have to find the right time period to put it in, and so there's debates over that. But even without those debates, uh, we have, uh, you have the question, who wrote the book of Exodus? Well, of course, the Bible tells us Moses did, but then that's assuming Moses is, is a historical figure. What we do from studying the Hebrew and the way the Hebrew is written, it reflects someone who knew Egyptian, because there are words used that only fit an Egyptian context. We know that whoever wrote these things were eyewitnesses. I mean, it talks about uh, the names of certain places and individuals, or even a name like Moses, uh, you know, Tutmosis and Amun Moses, and all, all these different Egyptian figures. His name itself has an Egyptian flavor. Uh, talking about midwives, talking about certain customs and cultures and, and how they made the bricks and how everything that we find in the book of Exodus fits an exact historical time period. Uh, it, it doesn't fit uh, another time period. It is always someone who exists far after this period of time or writing from a different place entirely could not have come up with these details, which are very time-based. Um, I think also if you look at something, uh, and, and I'm, I'm drawing parallels from what we know, I think there's much more that can be, be said, and I'll say it in just a second, but take something like King Tut's tomb. That was a uh, tomb that had not been plundered in antiquity, not completely, so they found a number of things. One of the things 
a couple of incidents. We found uh, key-touched actual tomb in the sarcophagus. It's got a, a huge uh, wooden building around it that uh, has carrying poles. Inside is a sarcophagus on an arc. Winged uh, figures, one on each side with their wings touching. Uh, there were boxes found also in the tomb that were wooden boxes with carrying poles, as well as uh, smaller ones that had a shrine of a, of a god on the top of it. Very similar to what we have when we talk about the construction of the tabernacle, uh, because the King Tut's actual sarcophagus uh, was huge and had three parts to it. And then the Ark of the Covenant. We know that the people who made the Ark of the Covenant came out of Egypt. They probably had their uh, skills developed in Egypt, so as they built the Ark of the Covenant, it fits that. Uh, King Tut existed in 75 years after the time of Moses, if we take the early date for these events. And so we have a very parallel and things like that. Uh, we do have people who are doing hard work today to try to bring about Egyptian evidence for the Exodus. Um, Brad Sparks uh, is someone I know. He's working with parallels from Egyptian literature, in which he thinks he finds actual statements about the Exodus reflected there. Ben um, Petrovich, who is an Egyptologist, uh, has been working with proto-Sinaitic inscriptions from Sarabat al-Kadim, and these are some of the oldest that we know. They come from the very place where the Israelites were. And if he properly is uh, reading these, then we have some parallels there that reflect uh, to statements people are making as they're in the Sinai about the events of the Exodus and, and even Moses. Uh, this hasn't been published, so it's the kind of thing that hasn't yet been studied, but this is the kind of thing that's being done. And so we really believe the evidence is out there. Um, I just need one other example. We have the Ippawar Papyrus. This is in the Bladen um, uh, Museum in the Netherlands. Its, it's dating is somewhat uh, ambiguous, but it, it may come from a time later than the time of the Exodus. Not much later in some cases, but it reflects almost, and I'm saying almost exactly, uh, line for line item for item, the ten plagues that were in Egypt. And, I mean, you could say, well, this was, this was just talking about another plague. But how could it be when it has the exact same structure as the previous plague, uh, the one recorded in the Bible? So we have these kind of parallels that still have to be discussed by scholars. I'll, I'll, I'll say this just kind of concluding this. When you think of the Exodus, uh, you cannot explain... The people of Israel, historically or, theology, or theologically apart from an exit, uh, for what, uh, you know, 3,000 years, we've had the Passover and the event of the Passover celebrated continuously by the Jewish people. What was, the, what was the source for that? What was the cause of that? What has bound them together as a people and given them an origin of history? Uh, the only thing that explains that is an actual event, which the Passover talks about that God intervened, he brought them out of Egypt, it was a Passover in which they were released from their bondage, and others were punished, and uh, they were set free at the cost of the blood of the, of the lamb that was sacrificed. So this is the kind of thing that, when you're looking into it and, and with, with some, um, I'd almost say, you know, objectivity, uh, you'll find that 
book of Exodus has a great deal of historicity. Hmm. Yeah. Amen. And so, uh, all right. So Moses and uh, uh, the the uh, Hebrews they exit Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. Uh, they end up in the wilderness for uh, 40 years, uh, and then there is this event of the the conquest of Canaan, where Joshua uh, crosses the Jordan into Canaan, and and they take the place. Uh, what kind of evidence do we have for that conquest of Canaan in the book of Joshua? Well, like the other sites, this is also a debated account, and based on the fact that different archaeologists working at different periods have supposedly produced different results. Uh, the earliest excavations that took place in the beginning of the last century uh, wrote confirming that the site of Jericho was a site that um, you know, had uh, validity and fit the biblical account. And then in the 1950s, a woman named Kathleen Kenyon, a British archaeologist, excavated there, her conclusion was, because she excavated a different area and didn't find certain kinds of imported pottery and other things, but fit a certain time period, she said, well, you know, the, the site of Jericho was uh, already destroyed and uninhabited when Joshua came into the land, so there was no Jericho for him to conquer. Well, she didn't publish her results for 35 more years, and when she did, people who looked at that said, you know what? She was wrong. That's just not the case. Now, we have right. in earlier excavations plenty of examples from the tombs in the late Bronze period, the time the Bible records for this. Um, she found uh, evidence of fallen walls, but she attributed that she said, this is Middle Bronze period. Well, my personal opinion is that the, much of the walls were Middle Bronze at the time uh, when we talk about time period, we're talking about maybe 100 to 150 years between when this wall may have been built and when it sure came in. These walls would have remained. They had a, had a stone foundation, a mud brick um, uh, revetment wall above them. And the issue is, is that you know, why, why tear down your wall and remake another one? There's no need to. This wall is good enough. That's, so that, uh, that wall was still there in the time of Joshua. But Let's just say from her account, as well as earlier accounts, uh, we know exactly what happened there. And the archaeological evidence uh, shows that Jericho was a fortified city. That's something the Bible says was the case. We also know it was destroyed by fire. The Bible says that three cities were destroyed by Joshua, um, and this was the first of them. Uh, and then we know that the fortified walls collapsed. And they collapsed in such a way that the Israelites could then run up and invade the city. And there's evidence, of course, of these collapsed walls. No question of that. Then we know because they found uh, grain, big jars of grain that had been burned, uh, part of the destruction, but grain just simply is preserved by being, break, by being burned. And so here we have these huge jars of grain. Well, it tells us that. It tells us that you wouldn't have that much grain unless it had been the time of the grain harvest. That happens in the spring. And the Bible says that Joshua and his forces conquered Jericho in the spring. It also, it also tells us that they only marched around the city for seven days. So it was a very short siege. And, and having that much grain indicates that, well, of course, they didn't need it up. If they'd been under siege for a long period of time by some enemy, the grain would have been consumed, but it's all there. 
And then we're oh, that's really... And then the Go Bible ahead, sorry. Tells us that. Yeah, the Bible tells us that. And then the Bible also tells us that uh, God said that the Israelites were not to take anything out of Jericho. It was under a ban. Yeah. So, and that included the grain. So if the people didn't eat the grain, neither did the Israelites. They didn't take it with them. So every little detail we find archaeologically supports the biblical account of the conquest of Jericho. That is awesome. Uh, what about uh, some of the other cities, like AI and uh, any other of the cities that yeah. seem to fit the well, biblical account? Certainly. I mean, we have, uh, I should have mentioned also the uh, things, well, I'll mention it in a minute, but just we have uh, this site that's traditionally referred to as AI is uh, uh, basically um, at Tell, they call it, and Albright had discovered it. Problem is, it has no remains left from the time of Joshua. Uh, it was either they were either removed or uh, you know quarried, and other things took place. There's just nothing there, so you can't confirm anything. You may say geographically it's like the right place, but right near there is another place that has been excavated for the last 20 years, a place called Kirbat El Makarta. Now, we don't know absolutely for sure that that's AI. The archaeologists doing this feel very strongly that it fits the biblical account. But what they discovered, uh, they, they have walls, they have gates, they have things that fit that time period. Uh, they certainly have features that um, would fit the idea of AI. Uh, AI, though, is called, in Hebrew, it means heap or ruin. And so uh, it's not meant to be a huge uh, city. Uh, and that also fits uh, with their excavation side. So we don't have real confirmation of AI yet, but we have work being done that may confirm that. And I think that's always encouraging me because with archaeology, uh, it takes a long time for some of these results to be seen. Hmm. Are you ready to move on, or is there something else there with uh, well, Joshua and Well, we go on to the book of Judges. I mean, I... The um, the conquest of, of Canaan uh, is also seen in the book of Judges, so we talk about that. I mean, it's continuing conquest and settlement. So if you move on to number six, if your questions, I can say a little more. Yeah, right, right. And I've heard very little uh, confirming uh, the book of Judges um, as far as, you know, the things I've read and some of the videos I've watched. Um, what say you? Well, if the book of Judges, uh, you know, we're talking about the 12th to the 11th centuries uh, B.C., uh, you know, maybe I'm certainly even before that, uh, 13th century to the 11th century, but you have, um, you have a situation where Israelites or Hebrews come into the land. They don't have anything. They're, they're nomadic at this point. They've only brought with them... Uh, as a slave people, what knowledge they have, they settle into the native population. And uh, they, basically, their styles of pottery differ very little. They, they're more plain than the Canaanite pottery, which is painted. But uh, they're inhabiting, that's what God says, you you inhabit buildings you did not build. You know, you're taking over um vineyards and things you did not plant. I mean, God gave them this land, and, and they conquered these things. 
so when you're looking for them as a distinct people at this time, it's hard to find. Nevertheless, um, there have been over 250 sites that have been discovered in the Hill Country, north and south of Jerusalem. Uh, these are settlements. These are emergent people who came in. They're, they just they just appear. And, you know, some people say, well, these are people who came from the Jordan or whatever, but there's no documents to confirm it. But the Bible tells us that the Israelites emerged at this point. They settled in this land, in the land of Canaan. And so, given the document, documentary evidence of the Bible, this best identifies these people. Uh, so we know they were there. We know from uh, Egyptian stele called the stele of Menephtah, it shows us, it states it, that Israel was in the land, it was a nation, it's considered a nation state in the land of Canaan, um, and, and the Menephtah stele is dated 1219 BC. So we already have a statement that Israel was in the land, settled and established, recognized as a people by the Egyptians at that point. So it tells me that you know this is the settled people uh, during the time of the judges. We even have an earlier document, uh, still somewhat debated by, by scholars, but it's called the Berlin Topographical uh, Statue Base Relief or the Berlin Pedestal. Uh, can be dated to the time of Amenhotep II, uh, somewhere around the 15th century BC, and it mentions also Israel along with. Uh, Canaan and Ashton. Um, and this is what you see on the Stereo Menethe that's later in time, but the same people group is mentioned earlier. So it, it at least testifies in some sense that Israel was seen as a distinct people even that early. Uh, but that's before the time of the, the conquest of the Solomon. But it recognizes that they, each is recognized them then and they recognize them later to being one of the peoples of the land. Hmm. That's really good. So moving on to King David, uh, you know, the book of uh, the, the first and second Samuel, uh, King David's pretty noteworthy character throughout the scriptures in, in uh, Israel's history. Um, I have heard lots of skeptics take shots at the Bible and say that King David never existed. Uh, is that true? Well, until recently, that was true, and, and not that he didn't exist. He didn't exist within the archaeological record. Right. Was, uh, one of the women I mentioned, uh, Catherine Kenyon, an archaeologist, said that we have no evidence of King David or King Solomon in the archaeological record. But that changed in the 1990s with uh, excavations at Tel Dan, the northern part of Israel. Um, they found... Uh, Upside down and sticking in the wall, pieces of a monumental stele that had been erected by uh, Hazel, one of the enemies of Israel, and he had uh, he had defeated the northern king of Israel, and also he considered the king of Judah, and so Israel in its two uh, parts, which they considered as one people, and they listed and they said, "I have defeated the king of." Of, of the house of Israel and the house of David. Now, when he says house of David, uh, he's referring to the Davidic dynasty. You, if you have a house of David, you have to have a David to have a house. 
and so and so you've got an historical figure mentioned, and it's not mentioned by Israelites trying to create um, uh, origin history or create some kind of heroic myth. Uh, no, this is mentioned by the enemies of Israel as a historical statement, hundred years or more after the time of King David, referring to this uh, these kings that came from David's line. So that uh, that is a good argument in favor of historical data. We, because of that, they've been able to actually restore a line in what we call the Misha inscription or the, uh, the Moabite inscription. Uh, there, it talks about uh, the house of, and it's speaking about uh, southern Israel. And there, um, you had part of the letters, but not all of them. And based on what this inscription shows, that should be restored also to how the data. So if that's the case, we have two archaeological documents, one we already had but couldn't read, and one we found that mentions uh, King David uh, as the king of Israel, and uh, the house of David continuing after him. Oh, very good. Very good. Uh, what about First and Second Kings? There's like 400 years of history uh, recorded in those books. What types of things have been found to um, um, support the history that we find in those books? Yeah, well, later in time we go, and we're talking now the, let's say, the 8th through the 6th centuries B.C., there's abundant evidence in the archaeological record, and, and most of even the skeptics agree on the history at this point. I mean, they differ on events that have a theological tone to them, like um, the Sennacherib's invasion of uh, Jerusalem and, and you know, angelic intervention and things like this, but they won't differ with the details and the facts that happen because there's so much archaeological evidence. Now, where there's, where there's been more debate has been in the 10th century B.C. Uh, when we had the founding of the Kingdom of Israel. Of course, First, Second Kings and Chronicles even Samuel before that I have a lot to say about this because King David and King Solomon established the kingdom. But a lot of archaeologists were saying at one time, you know, we don't have any evidence in the 10th century. Um, Jerusalem probably didn't exist. This, this is a, a mythological uh, reading of history. Uh, just, just couldn't be. So uh, they, they tended to have their day in the field until... Uh, probably about six, seven years ago, a site called Kirbat Kayefa uh, came to light. It's on the the boundary of Judah, and it's located right near the place uh, uh, in the Elah Valley, the very place where David had his contest with Goliath. And, and there we see... Uh, in the excavations, inscriptions that show that there was a scribal uh, activity going on, people recording documents. We found there's a palace there, a palace from the time of David. can't call it necessarily David's palace, but it's a palace over which David uh, certainly exercised authority. Uh, there's all kinds of other religious objects and things found here. Uh, the excavators themselves, which is Israeli, Said, there's no doubt that we had a, we had a 10th century, um, and even, maybe even going back to the 11th century, time of Saul, uh, an established city here. 
Now, it's on, it's on the very outskirts of the Judean boundaries, which means that if you had these kind of um, smaller cities that well fortified, with a scribal uh, activity going on, religious affection, a palace, what would you have had in the capital city in Jerusalem? You know, the problem with Jerusalem is that it's built over, been built over for centuries and centuries. So you can't tear down existing buildings and, and homes and things to get to that archaeology. What we have excavated, things like in the city of uh, David, um, uh, and it's called that because it's where the city began. And there is immense archaeological evidence there. There's evidence of ritual structures that go back even predating the time of David, uh, of walls, of water systems, all kind of things that are utilized, mentioned different times in the Bible. Uh, perhaps even the one mentioned later by King Hezekiah uh, of a conduit or a water system that took water from uh, the Gihon Spring and channeled it into the city uh, so that invaders like uh, the Assyrians and others could not get that water source. They disguised the, the outside source and then had the water flowing underground. We actually have a water tunnel cut like that through solid rock mentioned in the Bible. Uh, we have cities, you know, like Hatzor and Gezer and Megiddo, all mentioned in the Bible, all with the same gate system, all with the chariots, uh, the stables, the things that are mentioned there. Uh, so we have no question that those are, are biblical cities. Uh, even from the first temple period, we don't have remains we can clearly identify of the first temple, the Temple of Solomon. Uh, we have uh, identified a wall built by Solomon. Uh, Lot Mozar has identified this and, and explained this was built by Solomon. But most of that, of course, was destroyed and built over again when the second temple was built, then destroyed by the Romans later. So it's so hard to put these pieces together. But what is being found shows this. Now, the one thing I can, I think I can add, you know, we have, uh, oh, goodness, like one account, for instance, uh, I mentioned uh, Sennacherib, the Assyrian monarch attacking uh, Judah. We have uh, his palace in Nineveh has a 90-foot relief showing in detail uh, how he attacked the city of Lachish, one of the Judean cities. It explains it all. You can see it, in, like if someone took a photograph of the whole thing, it's there. And then we have the Taylor Prison. This is a octagonal-sided uh, um, uh, cylinder that is Sennacherib's own account of attacking Jerusalem. And in that, he mentions that he had King Hezekiah Judah shut up like a bird in a cage. But he says he didn't, he records that he did not actually conquer the city as he did these other cities. And the reason of that is explained in the Bible. We have nothing in the history that tells us why that happened, but we, we know that it happened. And so the Bible gives us the best explanation for that. Um, we have, you know, throughout this period of time, seals that show the names of different people. For instance, Hezekiah, as was mentioned. We have seals with his name on it. One of the most familiar stamps on jar handles is called the Melech seal belonging to the king. And it's clearly from the time of Hezekiah. We even have a seal that has an image of King Hezekiah. Um, Uzziah, who was mentioned in the book of Isaiah, to the kings uh, this time, and the father of Hezekiah, he um, he built, he was 
entombed with the Judean kings, and the layer his tomb was moved in the Second Temple period, they put a new stone on this place where his bones were, and it says, this is the tomb of Uzziah, king of Judah, born open. And you can see these in the museum. So uh, we also have the Babylonian uh, chronicles. These are uh, cuneiform tablets. Uh, we don't have like a complete chronology of them, but they tell us uh, many of the details mentioned in the Bible. For instance, Sinat, um, Nebuchadnezzar, the second siege of Jerusalem. We have the actual fall of Jerusalem. We have that tablet. We have all the other details uh, from the same kind of time period, maybe a little after the talk about the exile. We have a ration tablet for King Jehorchim, who has taken uh, this kind of bridging the gap. The Babylonians captured him. He was the last king of, of Judah, and they they took him, blinded him, took him over to Babylon and put him in prison. But we have from the Babylonian account the natural action tablet, the food he was given as a royal prisoner, and his name is mentioned. So you, you had these kind of things all throughout this period, and the whole book's written, uh, giving uh, more and more of the facts and details uh, from these books of St. Kings and Chronicles. Okay, well, what about following that? Uh, you know, uh, uh, Babylonian uh, captivity took place, uh, and then the Jews eventually received that uh, okay to head back to Jerusalem. And, and we know that not very many of them went at first. Uh, but the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they talk about that. What types of evidence do we have for uh, those two books? Well, quite a bit, of course. As I've said, the later in time you go, the more material that is, uh, we have available to us. Um, you know, concerning the event of the Jewish people being allowed to leave uh, Babylon, now under Persian control, and go back and settle in, 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 in Judah, uh, we have something called the Cyrus Cylinder. This is King Cyrus who gave the original decree, uh, and, and it's not necessarily an account of the specific biblical event, but it describes that King Cyrus wanted to take people who had been uh, brought from other countries and had been settled uh, in the land of Babylon. He wanted to take them and restore them to their native lands and pay for the restoration of their temples. And that's exactly what happened in the case of the Israelites. So we have an historical document that says, here's who did it, here's how it happened, and that's, of course, what we find in the Bible. Um, we have people like uh, uh, mentioned in the book of Ezra, chapter 2, verse 46, a family named Hagav. Hagav uh, is simply one of the families mentioned in this uh, list of families that came out of Babylon and into the land of Judah during uh, the post-exilic period. And a seal was found uh, with Hagav's name on it, mentioning you know, that he's one of these uh, families uh, was found in Jerusalem. He's actually apparently an important figure. So we can actually document some of those actual families. Uh, was mentioned uh, in the book of Esther. He was the husband of the king, the husband of Queen Esther. Uh, there is a whole Xerxes inscription for Persepolis that talks about him in detail, establishes uh, his historicity and how he treated others under his uh, control. So as we look at this period of time, 
not only do we have a lot of parallels in terms of customs and practices, we have the actual people and names and events recorded. Right, right. Um, okay, what about this then? There are all of the prophets that you find throughout the Old Testament, you know, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hezekiah, and the like. Um, obviously, they all fall within that 400 time or 400 year time period of First and Second Kings, for the most part. Um, what type of evidence do we have for the existence of those prophets? Well, what you have to do is you have to say these are people who were used by God from all different walks of life. He must be the British shepherd. Uh, other people were statesmen, but uh, they had a, a message for their time. Uh, and, and the cultural situation of their time. But uh, while they recorded the Bible, they may or may not have been recorded in the archaeological record. We don't have a lot of their names mentioned. But we have names mentioned that they mentioned, people and events mentioned that they mentioned. And we have, for instance, um, Jeremiah, the prophet. Uh, he had a scribe, his name was Baruch. And Baruch wrote the book of Jeremiah as Jeremiah dictated it, and we have actually a seal, probably a seal that was put on the original book of Jeremiah, but it was burned by the king at that time, uh, and this was found in some of the archaeological remains in the city of David, right, where it would have happened, uh, although this one came through the antiquities market, they trace it back to that, and it has on it the name Baruch. And it's from this time period. Well, we think that's the very Baruch who was described in Jeremiah. Um, Isaiah mentions a figure named Shebna and complains, uh, and, and actually is recording God's complaint against this individual because of his pride. He builds, it says, a tomb. Uh, it makes himself out to be like a royal figure, a king, uh, because he has his monumental inscription on his tomb. Well, this tomb is actually found. And the inscription uh, does boast of uh, his royal connection as a steward, as all. But uh, because we have this, we know that you know this is a person Isaiah knew. You Isaiah, so we go back. back. Uh, we have we have different things too. I mean, you talk about Jonah, uh, Jonah and the great fish, not the whale, but the great fish. And people say that's part of the most mythological stories in the Bible. Not so. Uh, when you come to the book of Jonah, while we don't have anything that mentions Jonah's name, right, per se, what we do have, we have uh, from the Babylon Chronicles and others that show us what was going on in these times, we, in Assyrian uh, records, it tells us uh, that there were events uh, that happened in, in over a, about a decade of time. Famine, plague, with bolts, eclipse of the sun, uh, many other things, that all ended in the year 758 B.C. with a more peaceful situation. Well, if you look at Jonah and, and date it according to the, the biblical dating, 758 is the time he would have come uh, right there to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and preached, repent, or God's going to judge you in 40 days. Now, they certainly would have believed that message. What would have made them believe it? Well, all these preceding things that God had caused to happen in their culture that made them think that, uh, you know, uh, things were against them. More than that, 
Uh, they had been polytheistic before, but just before this time, it was a shift to monotheism, in which they they looked at one god uh, responsible for all of these acts. And so Jonah right. preaching, preaching one god and says God's going to destroy. Hey, don't have to tell us twice. It's been happening. And so when he speaks and they repent, then the situation changes. And it's a hundred uh, years until that changes again, and God judges and finally receives the book of Nahum. So now, these kind of things corroborate the, the activities and the setting historically of the prophets, even if we don't have their direct names. But you know, their names persist throughout history. Uh, we have people, you know, with biblical names today. We have Zeke for Ezekiel, we have certainly Jeremy for Jeremiah. We have uh, people with all the biblical prophets' names. Uh, that had there had to be some reason for that. They had to exist at one time and done the things the Bible said they did, in order for their names to be perpetuated, you know, in uh, in Israelite culture and then also in uh, a Judean Christian um, culture that is drawn from the Bible. So uh, we've managed to make it through the entire Old Testament, <laughs> talking about various finds that uh, confirm the historicity of so many events throughout the scriptures. And, and friends, there are so many archaeological finds out there. We covered just the tiniest little sampling. Um, one, one book out there that actually discusses quite a few, but I would imagine still yet there's so much more, uh, but really covers quite a few finds, uh, is uh, Dr. Randall Price's book, uh, The Stones Cry Out. Uh, Dr. Price, do you want to talk about that real quick? Well, this is a book I wrote for a popular audience, that for, you know, for young people as well as others. Uh, it simply takes the events we talked about in the Bible, the stories you know of in the Bible, but gives the archaeological historical evidence for them. And uh, not only for the Old Testament, but also for the New Testament at the time of Jesus. And so the stones crowd is drawn from a passage in the uh, book of Luke in which uh, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and the disciples and all the people following him uh, are you know, welcoming him with uh, platitudes that speak of him being the Messiah. And the, and the Pharisees say, tell your disciples to stop saying this. He says, I tell you, if these keep silent, the stones will cry out. And I think he had in mind all of the city of Jerusalem right in front of him that had witnessed all of this history we just talked about. It was if those stones could speak, wow, what they would tell us. Huh. We, have, we have living witnesses that can tell us that. But I think we now have the archaeological record that can tell us these things. And I think in God's providence, he's preserved many things. I, I said at the beginning of our program that... Archaeology is a very limited context. You don't have that much. But I can add to that, uh, uh, even in that limited context, what we have supports, confirms, corroborates you know, the information we have in the Bible so that we can go to trustworthy text. And that's what I tried to put in our book, The Stone's Crowd, so that uh, people would have that information. There is a video as well uh, associated with this book, I, I would imagine made somewhat after the fact. A uh, really good video. Yes, it's a little bit older, uh, but it's got some great content in there. 
something else you mentioned when we started talking today um, is you're working on another book, and it's actually due out fairly soon, hopefully this fall or, or next spring, uh, the Zondervan Handbook of Biblical Archaeology. Tell me about that. Yeah, uh, Dr. Wayne House and I have been working on this together for a number of years, trying to get some of the latest archaeological information, uh, the latest finds, and put those in a handy kind of form so that a person can start the book of Genesis and go through the book of Revelation. If they're working on a certain passage of the Bible, they want information uh, that helps them in certain areas of, of the Bible, they can turn to that and find it. It'll be a full-color book with lots of uh, 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 information, but also pictorial information, so this can be put together. And uh, I'm told that'll be available in 2016. I can't tell you exactly when. Okay, that's that's exciting. Um, that is something that I will be putting on my wish list for sure. Um, <laughs> Well, yeah, Dr. Price, uh, oh, friends, we're hoping to have Dr. Price back. We're going to talk about New Testament uh, archaeology, so look forward to that. God willing, I I really would like to have you back on. Uh, Dr. Price, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's, It's been an honor. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. Look forward to talking to you again. All right, we're going to stop right there. Again, guys, that is Dr. Randall Price. And yes, God willing, I'm going to have him back on here in the next week or so so that we can talk about biblical archaeology as it pertains to the New Testament. So look forward to that. And with that, I love you guys. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.